Hey everybody, how's it going? Dan Schinder here on Yes Shift with... Steven Schinder. The other Mr. Schinder. And we are thrilled to have a, a first-time offender, first-time hazing, first-time guest here, Michael Franklin, who has worked with a few people. He's worked with John Anderson, Tony K. Alamite, Chris Squire, uh, Paul McCartney, Todd Rundgren, John McLaughlin, Billy Cobham, so many more. Chick Corea, the late, great Chick Corea, Rick Wakeman, Patrick Moraz, and he's here to boost his career. Welcome, Michael. We are thrilled to have you on board. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for, for joining, Steve and I. We are really excited to have you. There's so much to talk about. Um, one of the main things, of course, is uh, the the new 1,000 hands, but I'm going to let Steve kick it off and uh, we'll see where all this goes. Yeah. So for those who aren't that familiar, tell us how you got into music and what drew you to keys and whatnot. Um, as I was saying in little the little preamble that we did before, I was a sickly little kid and um I was left out on a farm with my great grandparents and only spoke Italian and th they had no television, a Victrola and the radio and a piano. And that's how I started the piano after my recovery. And I uh, got back into, uh, you know, going back to school with my friends, I wanted to continue. So my parents had bought me a little organ and then I joined a local band playing the organ. And we, um, won a battle of the bands contest which uh made our first recording and then we were off to the races you know playing shows and learning songs and and about you know, how old were you at this point michael about how old um i was about uh 14. okay i was about 14 years old and um a friend of mine uh his father was like a manager of a band well they had a pa system so they could you know they could lead the band and uh, he put us into a lot of different shows. And by the time I was 16, my father had gotten a promotion and moved. We had to move from Buffalo to outside of Chicago. And when I got to my uh, new residence in Chesterton, Indiana, I was devastated because, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of cornfields. My house was surrounded by cornfields. I'm going to go, what is going to go on with my musical career? Right. And um, I'm sleeping in an unfinished house, helping my father finish the house. And one morning, knock at the door and there's three beautiful girls at the door. Welcome me. Welcoming me to the community. Right. <laughs> Farm groupies. <laughs> so I was pretty happy. And then they introduced me to a guy who was a drummer. And then things went on to that. I formed my first band. You know, they were, in a sense, to me, hicks. They didn't know anything about music. <laughs> I was the top dog who had already done shows and whatever. And that my bands, uh, you know, progressed on and on and on until, you know, I was doing professional things. Um, I was hired by a local theater to be a band leader for, like, a lot of oldies guys. Mm -hmm. Danny and the Juniors, uh, you know, uh, the Drifters, the, oh. the Players. And I cut my teeth on that in a big theater as being a music director, writing charts. And then after that, Wolfman Jack hired me to be the uh, uh, band leader for his television show. Oh, wow. Because I had that knowledge. You know, I was, yeah. we were playing jazz and rock. And the idea that a lot of rock guys would play oldies rock and roll like, you know, heavy metal. They didn't get the nuances of it was really early rock and roll was from the big band era mm -hmm. and yeah. all those guys like bill haley and all the people who played they all had this big band jazz finesse and yeah. my brother and i and our guys were all playing jazz so we brought that to the oldie shows and all the oldies guys just loved it you know they really really loved it and um from then on we progressed from the oldies on into more 60s and then more 70s uh and then uh we moved to florida and wolfman opened up his own club mm, and I was yeah. music, director, music director there and with that i sort of got a chance to pick the people i wanted to play with 
Nashville Network started a television show called um, Little Darlin's Rock and Roll Palace, which was on for three seasons and, and was in like seven countries. And then it became, because of me, it became Wolfman Jack's Rock and Roll Palace. I did the negotiations with our network to change it to Wolfman. Mm. And me and we were very, very close friends. I remember going to uh, rehearsal, uh, a lunch during rehearsal, and hearing Ride Captain Ride on the radio. Mm. And I said, well, I love that song. And Wolf says, hey, man, you want to get Mike Panera? I know him. Next night, we flew Mike Panera to the show, and the band we played Ride Captain Ride. And I've been oh, in... Cool. I've been in Blues Image ever since, 30 years, I think. We've been doing Blues Image, you know. Wow. Oh, but neat. it was sort of like that. It was like, uh, who do you want on the show? Uh, you know, Joe Walsh, you know, all these different people. And then through my association with, uh, and not, I'm not letting you ask questions here. That's okay. <laughs> is, um, I, in my town in Indiana where I was doing the theater, there was a local music store called Rabino's and it was like the center of the musical universe of our, of Northern Indiana, which mm -hmm. was a very musical part of the country. I'm mm -hmm. telling you, Northern Indiana, Gary, Chesterton, Michigan city, Benton Harbor, Valparaiso. There were so many great bands and, mm -hmm. and you know, eventually we all, the thing was to get into Chicago and play. And um, there was a music store there, and they had uh, the Korg synthesizers, and I had a Korg synthesizer. So um, the the shop owner said, hey, you know, show these kids how to use it, Mike. And I was showing them how to use it. Then the local, the Korg, regional Korg guy came in, and he said, man, you really know what you're doing on that. He says, um, you want to be a clinician? I said, well, I'll, we'll give you free equipment, and we pay you to do some shows on the stuff. I said, man, that's a good job. <laughs> Yeah, who says right. no, right? Right. So he took me around uh, Midwest, and I played all kinds of cities. Just my little show on, uh, you know, a couple synthesizers, and you know, playing everything from, uh, you know, uh, Yes stuff, and you know, Keith Emerson, Lake and Palmer stuff, whatever. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, and uh, one time I did a clinic, and my partner was Chuck Lovell from the Rolling Stones. Well, he mm. wasn't in the Stones yet, right? He was in uh, the he was in C level, and then the Allman Brothers and Chuck and I became good friends, and then they did a big clinic up in New York where all the clinicians from Korg from all around the country all came for like a seminar to introduce the new products and whatever, and Chuck and I were the last people to arrive at this I think it was an army base they put us on, and there was only one room left so we had to room together, and it's uh, sort of crazy because. That's about the time he got the audition for the Rolling Stones, he, oh. you know. And since then, uh, you know, I've we've been close friends. He's played on a lot of stuff I've done. I've traveled around with the Stones, and you know, and and got a front row seat for that whole adventure for you know thirty years now. But he's one of my favorite people, and such a great artist and pianist. You know, I love that guy. That's awesome. Was in, when he they came to China, you know, when I was living, I lived in China fifteen years. And they came to China twice. Um, I helped get the Stones their uh, license from the Minister of Culture for their first tour. And uh, with that, then I would, you know, go to the show. But I brought my Chinese wife to see the Stones on the 2013 show. And she thought we were going to a local bar to see a band. <laughs> yeah, we end up getting, you know, front row and all access passes. And now she's a Rolling Stones, uh, you know, uh, authority. Oh, you that's know. awesome. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So we were going to ask you about that. I know you lived in China for 15 years. You lived in Japan, one of my favorite places to go for a couple of years. What What are the biggest differences and similarities in the way people view music between those two cultures? And I, I know that I'm yeah, not or I, like in general, just various cultures. It's a big difference. Yeah. Really is a big difference. American people here are very sidetracked by all the other social medias, you know, uh, mm. video games, uh, I'll say the NBA, all these mm -hmm. different things that are, I mean, NBA is big in China, but music is so big in China. I think I've equated it to like one factor is that the way that young Chinese people get to uh, socialize is through karaoke. Mm. Okay. And there's entire hotels that are only karaoke, all the rooms. 
young people, they rent their time. They invite their friends. The girl invites another girl to meet another guy, right? That's how people yeah. get together there. And the whole thing is all about music. So it's it's really crazy because some of the music that is in famous in China um, is stuff that we wouldn't consider to be popular there, like the platters. Oh, really? Wow. It comes from a young movie where, you know, a young dorky kid is trying to get the hot girl and uh, and he realizes that the only way he can do it is through the karaoke. And when he gets up to the karaoke to sing the platters, he is like marvelous and they're wow. all amazed and he gets the girl, right? So a lot of songs that you wouldn't think were really popular. I mean, of course, Hotel California is like the number one song in China. It has been for 20 years. <laughs> wow. And uh, then you got Right Here Waiting for You by uh, Richard Marks. Uh-huh. Songbird by Kenny G. Uh, you know, the Platters tunes. Um, he Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother by the what Holly. What an interesting mix. I, a lot of it, I believe, is because, which leads me to a really funny story. Don't lose that thought, Michael. Um, <laughs> a lot of it comes from the Vietnam War. That makes the, sense. The GIs were playing American music there, and the Chinese were getting it. Mm -hmm. And this is the story that I get from that. One of my closest friends in the world, I'll say one of my mentors was J.I. Allison, the drummer for the crickets. Mm -hmm. I produced the crickets. I played with the crickets, uh, you know, uh, on the, like the, the famous uh, Clear Lake shows, right. you know, whenever they would do, right. I would play piano and sing backup art and whatever. And, um, Jerry Allison wrote the song, Whoa, Whoa, Yeah, Yeah, Love You More Than I Can Say. Whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. More than I can say. Anyway, that is a big song in China. So big that one time I went down to a city called Kunming, and they had like the our uh, version of the uh, octogenarian uh, Pres preservation hall band, mm -hmm. right? All these guys who are like 80 and 90 years old playing Chinese music and I went and saw that and they played and I asked the guy I said you know where'd you learn that song he said, oh old ancient Chinese song and I, I I recorded the conversation and then I also recorded a guy playing the flute in Shanghai in the middle of a square playing the song and I gave it to Jerry and he said you know that's crazy they got it from the Vietnam War it was the tail end. That's yeah. where they, they heard that melody. It's in the Chinese scale. It's all pentatonic. So, you know, Chinese only have five notes generally in their music. Yeah. You know, and so that's it. How and, interesting. And do I understand it correctly? And, and I may be way off, but would it be fair to say, Michael, that in Japan for decades, what's been huge there is hard rock, heavy metal, and prog? Oh, yeah. More man. contemporary to some degree. Well, same thing with the Philippines. You know, when I was in China, I had to leave every month on you know, the visa that you get, no matter who you yeah. are, until a certain point in time, until I got my 10-year visa. I'd have to leave the country every month for a day. Yeah. So I would fly, where am I going to go this week? I'm going to go to Mongolia. I'm going to go to Thailand. I'm going to go to Japan. Philippines. Philippines and Japan were in a sort of the same thing. Army bases, 70s and 80s, you know, you know, big classic rock like Survivor and Journey and uh, uh, Starship and mm -hmm. Toto. That is the music that they really love. I just had Marty Friedman, you know, from the original guitar player for Megadeth. Yeah. Here in the studio for a week rehearsing before he did his American tour. You know, Marty moved to Japan and his whole band was Japanese. Fantastic players. Wow. I mean, unbelievable players. But it's sort of the thing where that heavy metal stuff became uh, sort of the macho idiom for America. And, you know, it. people think, oh, you know, people don't like America. You know, the word for America in Chinese is megua. It mm. means beautiful place. Mm. And we are megoran. We sure megoran. We are me we're Americans. We are the people who live in the beautiful place. So imagine when they're trying to say something bad about you. Right. 
Yeah, oh, interesting. Those people who live in the beautiful place and that terrible place, the beautiful place, you know. <laughs> so they all love the American style idea, even like Elvis. I mean, in, in China, Elvis is Mo Wong. Mo Wong. It means like big hair or the other translation is cat king. Oh, wow. You know, cats, you know. Yeah. So they really do love American music, jazz, and of course, the rock. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been the reason why uh, classic rock has survived in those countries. I mean, I went to, uh, uh, I was in Tokyo with ARW last time they were there. You know, I spent time with John there. We were working on something. I think it was the 1000 Hands Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the people just went crazy, you know, over that music. Just, they love it. If it's complex, they appreciate it. Yeah. We're here, you know, it's, they it's, don't want anything too difficult. Yeah. They don't want to twist an ankle or hurt their hips dancing to something in 11.5. Or twerking, they're not interested. Yeah. 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 I- interesting. And in the 90s, um, you worked on some animated projects. What was that like? And how did that contrast from some other work that you had done? You know, believe it or not, all the stuff sort of, blends in together the networking of it mm. um when i did the rick wakeman well while i was working with melanie her husband introduced me to a guy whose father was the artist for popeye and felix oh. the cat chiquita banana casper the friendly ghost wow. his name is oriolo don has become one of my closest friends in my life he's a very very artistic guy a music guy who was the uh was with uh, Warner Chapel Music. He's written hundreds of songs that have been recorded by Gloria Gaynor, Benny King, all these people. And he's an artist. So me and him sort of clicked. Melanie's husband introduced me to him. And then I was on tour uh, and and met Rick Wakeman. My brother and I played with Rick Wakeman for a Korg clinic. That was it. We we went around England and played with Rick. And then we ended up at Ronnie Scott's to do a concert. Oh, nice. That's a great venue. So we played that concert. And then, you know, me and Rick were talking. And anyway, I got, uh, I said, you know, I wanted to produce an album. The idea was, you know, do some of his greatest hits, but redo them, you know, with modern synthesizers and whatever. And he was all for it. Any case, uh, Don financed it. He approved it, wanted to put it on his record label. And that's what got me to start working with Rick. Oh, via Melanie and then Don Oriolo, who had Felix the Cat. I started writing music for Felix the Cat. Then I started writing music for Baby Felix, which is a television show in Japan. Oh, wow. I had to go to Japan with those people to write the music. And then we got a job with um, Hello Kitty. So I wrote this show, uh, The Musical Adventures of Felix the Cat, featuring Hello, Hello Kitty. Oh wow! What and then I, then I then I went to Sanrio Pearl Land, which is where is the Disneyland of Hello Kitty. Yeah, and I wrote a live show for them, which lasted for many years, and uh, you know wrote the music for Hello Kitty. That's so awesome. it all sort of weaves together. You know, I mean, as long as you don't put up the block of of styles, you know, some people yeah. think music is only one style. You know. To me, it can't be because I've worked with, you know, Latino, Irish, uh, Mongol. I got a new project that I can't talk about yet, but it'll be on the Yes Shift eventually. With Great. The National Mongolian oh, nice. Orchestra. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, really good. Very <laughs> yeah. cool. Uh, we saw you post recently about how uh, back in 91, you were at the rehearsals for the Union Tour, the opening show in Pensacola. Uh, even appearing uh in the yes years documentary for a little bit yeah that uh, was pretty crazy yeah could you share any memories from that time it was such a huge thing uh yeah a, a couple of them one was uh rick inviting me to come up there because i had this um i was working as helping this charity give kids the world which is like for term for terminally ill kids mm-hmm. i knew the director of it and um i i came up with this idea that Young Chang, who, when I was doing all my Wolfman Jack television shows for like six years, 
I gave Young Chang Kurzweil credits at the end of every show for no reason at all. I just thought it was good for me to do it. And they end up giving me a ton of equipment. They gave me a white grand piano, which didn't sound very nice. Right. <laughs> and um, I was doing a show and on the show were two other piano players, Jerry Lee Lewis and Billy Preston. Oh, wow. And I, can, I can remember very, you know, uh, Jerry was in his element and, but Billy said, man, you know what you ought to do? You ought to sign the keys of that thing and give it away to charity. Take a tax deduction. That's what he told me. <laughs> wow. How funny. And that's what I did. I got all the keys. I took them all out. I sent them all around the world. A one key followed Elton John on tour, like from city to city to city. Oh, My wow. FedEx bill was over $7,000. And um, everybody, Stevie Wonder gave me a thumbprint. I got, you know, Emerson. Uh, I mean, think of any genre of music. I got all the country guys, uh, Mickey Gilly. I got uh, Floyd Kramer. Oh, right? wow. Henry Mancini, McCartney gave me a signature, uh, a Bruce Hornsby, of course, Billy Joel. I mean, 52, you know, things, right? Yeah. yeah. I brought two of the keys to Pensacola, one to, for Rick to sign. And that's in, it's not in the, the documentary, but I have video of that. Oh, great. I have, they sent me a whole reel of outtakes of that, you know, which I think, you know, and so Rick, is signing him and Tony are signing the keys and that went into that. So that was part of it. That was sort of like the reason I went, but um, then too, um, they were doing the rehearsals and the theater of the round was going around. You yeah. Know? Just, you know, and every once in a while when Rick would come around, you know, he was, he would say something funny every time he <laughs> circled back, you know, he'd say something hilarious, you know, but um, I do remember a great conversation with Chris Squire at lunch. It was just me and Chris sitting there. And uh, Chris had a sort of very caustic wit. I, you know, I don't know if you ever really talked to him, but yeah, I did once. Yeah. Very sweet guy, but he, if he, he could be very sarcastic in a very funny way. You know, you, you'd laugh. But you, it's terrible what he's saying, but you love the way he was saying it. It was so cool. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so he was talking about my dear friend, Patrick Moraz. And, you know, and I just sit there and listen to him. He says, so I hear you work with Patrick, you know. And he says, that's, you know, just so funny. A Swiss rock star. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't seem to work. But, right. You know, you know but men, I'm sorry. Go things, ahead. But that. But that was it. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned Patrick and I, I wanted to use him as an example for something. There's a lot of musicians and even more music fans who don't really know what a producer does. And I was thinking about this last night when I was listening, re-listening after a long time to Patrick's album that you did with him, Window of Time. And what came to mind was, I thought that would be a great example for you to explain because there's a lot of musicians that have only gigged, they've never recorded. There's a lot of music fans that have never been in a studio. They've never seen interviews with producers. To me, a producer's job in music is similar to a director's job in film. They're the ones that make it look the way it looks, and the producer in music is the ones that helps make it sound the way it sounds. The actor is the artist or the band. If we took Patrick's album, which is just piano, as, as bare as it could be one man, one musician. And someone might think, well, what would a producer do? You stick a microphone, you get a good sound, and there you go. But I think that'd be a great example for you to please explain what is the producer's job and what makes for a great producer? You no, know, uh, I did a class uh, at Full Sail Recording School one time mm -hmm. called Producer from Soup to Nuts. Mm -hmm. And the producer, it depends on the artist what you're doing. I mean, some producer, like in some of the cases, I write the music, I come up with the concept, I write the music, I get the artist to record it in a certain way. You know, artists can be their own worst enemy. They they don't know what the people want. For me, it's like, I want to do something that works, all right? You know, you've got your idealism in music and you've got, uh, you know, stuff that would just scare people away. You know, I mean, what would really work and 
and, and the best that you could do. Somewhere in between, my piano teacher, Alan Swain, told me is wisdom. Mm -hmm. Where you can bring those two together. So in all kinds of things about production, sometimes I was just a moral support of helping the guy you know, do something, or sometimes I was doing everything. In Patrick's sense, I, I want to say I sort of came up with the concept. Um, and then when he was doing something, I would, you know, I've got tapes of it. I've got tapes of the conversations. Mm. I have the original, you know, a time we did it through before we went into the studio to do it. We did it in my studio. And then I said, you know what? It, it's kind of sterile because it's just in a studio. So we did it live. We did it live at full sale. We didn't allow any clapping, but the vibe was live. So mm. we, we had uh, tickets, put the piano into the middle of full sale and invited people to come in there, just hoping the chairs didn't creak too bad. But right. the mic, the piano was mic'd up so well. And then Patrick went and did his thing. And then wow. it was sort of, you know, trying to, uh, not just the EQ, but the presentation of it. Sometimes it's just the the whole concept of it. You know, uh, this song should go there. No, you know, look at a big beginning, down a little bit, go to a thing. You've got to the end. You've got to do something low before the climax. You know, it's sometimes it's just direction of of the mode of everything. Yeah, and how it unfolds and how, how the musical story is told. Yeah. This this song is too close to that song. They shouldn't be that together. So it's a lot of different things, you know, but I mean, Patrick is a true artist. I mean, you know, with all artists, you got to be careful of claiming, you know, you're trying to help them, but you want them to be them. You're just trying yeah. to help them the best they can. That's what I try to do. I have to sometimes tiptoe around. <clears throat> it's not sometimes it's not ego. Sometimes it's they believe that they're in a certain place now. And they shouldn't have to do that. Mm. You know, they shouldn't have to do things that their fans want. Me, I think you, you you can hardly ever do that. You can hardly ever do exactly what you want. Uh, unless, you know, when, when you're playing to a, a focus group that, man, that works. You know, yeah. somebody can book a great idea and that's it in its entirety. But you have to have the the courage to go to the artist and say, but... I think it might be better this way. Good artists will at least listen to you. Right. And hopefully that's why they hired you too, to a degree, yeah, right? Know, uh, For input and feedback, objectivity. You know, um, I, I fortunately, I've had a lot of great, uh, you know, uh, camaraderie and trust with the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. So that w when you're telling them the stuff, they know it's not like you're looking down on them or it's ego. You're trying right. to look at I think that the average listener will think that's a mistake. You know, there are some things, I mean, some of the music that I have that I've never put out would clear a room, you know. It's it's sometimes, just, yeah, sometimes it's it's safe to just stay with something like Sound Chaser or Close to the Edge and go total <laughs> commercial. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, some artists, as they get older, want to slow it down a little bit they want to get a little bit mellower and stuff like that but their audiences are looking for the red meat yeah they want that they want to in yes's case they want another awaken yeah they want another sound chaser you know they they're not looking for another onward <laughs> not, not which is beautiful another. but yeah i yeah. get that yeah and and would you agree that producers and composers, musicians, songwriters, their sensibilities change as they get older. A, a 50 or 60 or 70 year old artist is different than how they were when they were 20 in a lot of ways. They've gone through life, they've experienced different things, they've aged, they, there's so many different, maybe they've gone through a couple of divorces or All four. the goalposts are moving all the time. Right, the, right. The people, their sensibility about stuff that you would have you know, the fidelity of what you listened to back in the 60s compared to now. I mean, if, even if you play great music, if the fidelity was that, people would just pan it. Yeah. You know, they you can get a piece of music and produce it. You can get a lousy piece of music. And with production, you can make it passable to listen to. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some, I mean, there's such new toys that I have in recently that I'm using on some of the stuff where I'm taking passages that need a little help. And then that gives you an idea about, you know, what can replace that this, mm. and then you place it and it served the purpose of being a catalyst. Right. You know? Awesome. Thanks for sharing all that. Cause like I say, I, I truly believe there's a lot of people that don't know what is that producer credit. So I appreciate you sharing that. Sometimes yeah. it's just a guy with the money, you know, <laughs> right. but, you know, but, <laughs> but uh, I think that when you're talking about people like, you know, Rick Rubin or Trevor Horn or mm -hmm. you know, people of that caliber, Jeff Lynn. Yeah. They have their, um, their stamp that they put on it. Yeah. I mean, you listen to a Jeff Lynn, production you go oh that's jeff lynn yeah. mike mike stone same thing yeah. with journey same in asia thing. yeah you know i sort yeah. of have my little formula that i'm working on that uh you know this every time i promoted a concert uh if you had one artist on it you had to make sure that people like the one artist yeah but then when you started doing shows that had three artists on it you got more people when you did five or six artists the place is packed because you're hitting all the different different sensibilities of all these different people. Yeah. So that was basically the idea for, you know, 1,000 hands. Yeah, let's well, move into that. Steve, yeah. do you have a specific question you want to start with? Yeah, I actually with? have the CD here in front of me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to ask, so 1,000 hands, uh, lots of fans already know some of the material originated from a long time ago and then got finished a few years ago. So how did you get involved with uh, John's album and how how 1,000 hands come together? Okay, remember that Rick Wakeman show at Ronnie Scott's? Yeah. The guy who played before us is a, a, p a keyboard player by the name of Brian Chatton. Okay. Now, Brian Chatton was in The Warriors with John. Yeah. Oh. He was in uh, Flaming Youth with Phil Collins. He played with Meatloaf. He played with Sheena Easton. He played with The Hollies. Oh, wow. And uh, anyway, uh, from that show, Brian gave me uh, a tape. Oh, actually, Brian, uh, at the rehearsals at Ronnie Scott's, that was the very first day I ever met John. Oh. Brian said, why don't you come down to the club called the Admiral and meet John? I said, great. So now this, uh, this, so we go down there and there's John. He's in a red trench coat. You know, it's like, wow, it's John Anderson. And we talked, it was very cordial. And uh, my brother and I had to get up to go to the restroom and we're both standing there at the urinal. Sorry, fans. <laughs> it is what it is. And at the same time, we both went sharp. <laughs> and that's been our inside joke ever. I mean, it was just totally impromptu because my brother and I are on that sort of mind meld together. Yeah. My questions, you know, whatever. He's my lifelong partner in crime. So uh, Brian gave me his tape and I loved all the songs on the tape. So, um, I actually helped Brian em uh, emigrate to the United States. Oh, okay. I was living in Chicago. He came and um, lived there and he met a girlfriend or whatever. And they, then I moved to Florida and then he came, followed me to Florida for a little while. And uh, then he eventually went to, uh, I think it was because of Tony K. Um, uh, Tony was in California. So he yeah. went out. But Brian had written five songs for a, another project with John. And um, anyway, Brian had given them to me and said, Mike, could you orchestrate these? You know, he just had the basic tapes. So I did. I I think I did four songs of the five. I did four songs out of five with in my studio with my my guys and everything. Same guys who played on the Rick Wakeman album, all the same guys. Mm. And uh, and then I remember that there was interest in a record contract for it. And I flew out to California and I met with John and I met with the lawyer, but there was some problem that I, you know, was above my pay grade to understand why it wasn't mm -hmm. working. You know, John uh, said, Hey, this is all good. Let's, you know, let's do it. And then it just <clears throat> fell down. And uh, 
as John puts it, you know, I he was busy with Yes and Kataro and doing and Vangelis and everything else he was doing. And I was doing TV shows and touring with all other kind of people. And uh, then one time I got a call um, to play with Iron Butterfly. Oh, wow. So uh, with Mike Panera. So I yeah. was at the Bakersfield Music Fest. Oh, wait. So I, I went to the Bakersfield Music Fest with my wife, who had uh, just brought here from China. You know, we had just moved back. Uh, from China, from China, it was like 2015, I think. Uh, and uh, so I said, you know, John only lives like maybe 50 miles or something like that from where I'm at. So I called up a mutual friend and said, hey, look, at tell John I want to meet with him, you know. So we met, we, I went to his place and we met and we started talking about doing the record and uh, he forgot all about it. <laughs> you know, so he said, man, I got it. I got to go dig for the tapes, you know? So he found the tapes. He sent them to me. I had them baked in New Jersey. Um, then I, I got the stuff and I started working on, you know, since I had it digitally, I could sit back and see what I had, what stuff uh, passed the bake test. Mm -hmm. you know, some of the Chris Squire bass parts were a little degraded. My brother had to play, you know, to freshen them up. Some, a, lot, some, a lot of them were good. But, you know, I didn't want to erase Chris's bass stuff. Mm -hmm. right. My brother had played a couple parts. Majority, 90% of it's Chris. But some of the things were a little muddled. Um, and then I started replacing people. I mean, most of it was synthesizers. A lot of it was Brian synthesizers. And a lot of those synthesizers had, I, I want to say, were dated by their sound. You know, M1, Sound 101. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. There's wild. 250 sound 404 you eight, know I, eight bit casio <laughs> yeah you know, whatever so but a lot of it was really really good stuff i just had to um reinvent the sound you know play it yeah. over it, some more fidelity so um but a lot of it was just it was just like four tracks five tracks or whatever and then um i was doing an album with larry coriel uh the great jazz player and my brother's was larry's bass player oh. and i was working on the first track which was activate and um i had a, a pseudo uh, acoustic guitar I was playing on the kurzweil and um and i said larry you want to play on this he said sure so larry went in and he played on it and it's oh, it's beautiful man i said i got another one for you later later on so he played on like three tracks larry coriel played on three, three tracks and then i was doing something with the uh, Billy Cobham, and then I asked uh, Billy to play on a track, and I John didn't know about any of this yet. And then I had Ian Anderson play on the track, and Ian said that uh, you can use some of it, none of it, or all of it. And I, used, <laughs> I, used, I used most of it, and that that is one interesting cat. I got to tell you, he's oh. one, one of the most intelligent guys i've ever talked to but he doesn't suffer fools which i probably am but uh, <laughs> you know very very matter of fact guy and uh but he he played on that and then he was gracious enough to play on robbie steinhardt's record and uh so he's a wonderful guy and a superior musician you know um daily i started thinking about the songs and saying okay who could play this part? Oh, Tower of Power is coming to town. Oh, the song makes me happy was something I think John sang me over the telephone. I had a <laughs> thing of it, you know, and, and what I did is I did this whole production of it and I even did a video. So when he came, I sat him down and he saw the whole thing. It was just like, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know what? I really appreciate the guy giving me the liberty to do a lot of things. Yeah. You know, I, he gave me liberty to do a lot of things. And the thing is, it wasn't so much liberty because as I say, John is in my DNA. If I could think of five albums that are me, it would be something like the Firebird, Close to the Edge, mm -hmm. uh, the story of I, 
Mm, yes. Nice. Beautiful <laughs> right? album by Pat. Yeah. Tarkus. Tarkus. Elias yeah. of Sunhillow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's Steve's favorite album ever, Elias of Sunhillow. The thing is, <laughs> is that. Um, One of them. It's high up there. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that the whole idea of what John calls the long form, you know, uh, mm. I, you know, all my stuff, I always like the idea of it being like Robbie's album was, was like a, you know, like an opera. Things sort yeah. of flow into each other. And uh, the same thing with uh, uh, 1000 Hands, you know, I mean, there was one song that Brian wrote. It was called Now, which was a little three minute ditty was just the same thing over and over again. And John sang it. it was a beautiful little song. And then I cut it up into three spots and put it at the beginning with just a guitar. And John loved the idea. It was just a guitar, you mm. know, it's, because it was a great song, but to do it, there was nothing more to it, a beautiful song. And then the next part, uh, I did like a Vivaldi string quartet and, and it was beautiful. And then that led to, uh now and again the very last song in the record yeah which was i thought was a great you know bookends kind of you know i production idea yeah and um i had a local guitar player great guitar player by the name of bobby coble who teaches at um uh ucf and he's a great jazz player he plays in the band death mm. right the heavy metal band, but he's a great jazz guitar player and great classical guitar player. So I had him come in and he played some nice classical guitar. And I thought to myself, man, I wish that was Steve Howell. So I reached out and Steve played on the track. Mm -hmm. So I sent it to John and John says, beautiful guitar. I said, yeah, it's Steve. He was like, Steve Morris? <laughs> Look, Steve Morris had played on Activate. No, yeah. Steve Howell. That made John write the the words to sing i think song. it was a great moment um you know pro i'm proud i pushed the envelope on some of that stuff but i'm saying you know it's he's the artist it's all up to him you know but it's i'm grateful that he allowed me to you know to say hey let's do this oh yeah okay let's try it you know whatever yeah i've worked with some people it's their way or the highway yeah. you know and it's I don't feel comfortable with it. If it sucks, it sucks. I can't do anything about it. And my name is on it as a producer. Yeah. You know, there are some things on 1000 hands that didn't make the grade. Um, and, you know, which uh, maybe in a producer's track, uh, you know, will come out later. I mean, the song activate me had about three or four minutes cut out of it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Which I think, is uh as i listened to the original version i think is very powerful <laughs> as my as john would say to my engineer said, john you gotta do it you gotta do it he would say matt that's the version that you listen to in your car <laughs> <laughs> that's funny what when you musically what kind of preview could you give people as far as how chapter two may differ musically if if at all is it a lot more the same is it an embellishment is it kind of off to the side and yeah. slightly different and, twists or and is any of it also based on older material or is it all new only one song if if the if the one song uh of brian's makes it to the last grade i think it's a beautiful song it's just whether you know um, you know john's the decider you know if you know i i put I'm helping him put the concept together. He sends me songs. I work on them. We go back and forth until the song is finished. And then I got a pile of songs. What is going to make the concept? Now I have for, if you're th talking about vinyl for side a, I've made an entire concept, which, uh, you know, I mean, we'll see if it, it uh, cuts the mustard, but there, are, it, a lot of it is, um, I always contend that, this isn't a John Anderson solo album as, as I tell him, you know, um, it's definitely John doing the ship, but it's a collaboration between all the people who join in and come mm. to the party, you know, cause you know, uh, Trevor Rabin, Rick Wakeman, Jerry Goodman, Robbie Steinhardt, uh, Joe Bonamassa, Bruce Hornsby, Victor Wooten, Tower mm. of Power. Yeah. <laughs> 
for me, it's a joy because a lot of times as I see people who are coming to town on Polestar, I say, okay, I'm going to do that session, <laughs> you know? Right. How interesting. Thanks for sharing that and giving us uh, a bit of a preview. Um, in the time we have left, we want to definitely touch on working with Robbie Steinhardt and what a beautiful album. And one of my questions is when you began working with Robbie on the project, was there any discussion of him saying anything like, I don't want this to sound like Kansas, or it might sound somewhat like Kansas because it's me, or it's going to sound like Kansas, but now because I am Kansas. Like, well, it's funny. Can uh, you share uh, some of that? I have some video of Robbie in here playing on Activate Me. And, uh, you know, he was just, it was, first off, it was hard to get to Robbie. He had so many people blocking me mm. from trying to get to him. Finally, I, I got through to uh, a friend, uh, Ronnie D, who is the son of the famous Joey D, you know, the Peppermint Twist. Yeah. A really, really great artist. He got me in touch with a guy named Rick Moon, who was playing in a band with Robbie. And Rick was uh, kind enough to help me get you know, have a discussion with Robbie, you know. And so it was like, okay, great. He's going to come out. He's going to play in a giant. And, and I thought, how man, am I going to get along with this guy? He's such a curmudgeon, you know. <laughs> but by the end of the day, we were fast friends. And after he played on uh, a couple things... Um, I had a song that I had just done with Billy Cobham and uh, it's a uh, climb to grace mm. no, uh, rise of the Phoenix. It was originally oh. called climb to grace and uh, Robbie played on it. And after a while I thought, Robbie, why don't you do an album? Yeah. You know, you know, da -da 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 -da. I said, well, come on, man, let's put our heads together. Anyway, we started seeing each other every couple weeks and then we started playing in a record, you know, my brother and I had some tunes, Robbie had some ideas and we started putting this thing together. And then, you know, I saw it, I saw the whole thing. And uh, when he wasn't uh, afraid of using not in Kansas anymore, you know, I thought, okay, great. Here's, here's our concept. And then I dreamt up the album cover front and back. Oh, which is great. I love the album art. Yeah. And Tom Lupo did the album art for me. He did a great job. And, um, you know, it was all just the whole concept. And then putting some of the Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, quotes in the songs. And, yeah. uh, and then the whole thing at the end with the witch and, uh, you know, not in Kansas. You're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> it was yeah. just, it was a mistake, but I decided to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> That's we awesome. Had this, uh, we had this new plugin called Alter Boy. And so I sang, not in Kansas anymore, but it allowed you to move the whole thing up an octave. Mm -hmm. But it became the Munchkins. That's yeah. great. Let's, let's use that. Oh, that's awesome. What a great album that is. And it's so yeah. sad that he he passed before it got released. Um, what was, how, was he satisfied with it when oh, yeah, it was yeah. done? I have, I have a picture of me and him sitting here like a science fiction 3000. <laughs> looking at the monitor, uh, listening to the final uh, mixes before I sent him off to, uh, you know, Bernie Grugman to master them. And uh, he was to he totally loved it. Oh, that's um, great. And, and some of the things like, you know, uh, the tune called uh, Pizzicato. Yeah. So, you know, he, he one night he suggested to me, he said, hey, I want to do something, you know, with Pizzicato. So I started writing a tune. My brother started writing it too. We sort of fused them together. And then uh, that's the one I decided that Ian should play on because, mm. you know, I put like a recorder and everything and he loved it. And he did such a great job. And he played, I su suggested he played flute and penny whistle, which he did. And it was nice. great. It was great. When I first heard the album, um, I imagined like, wow, what a show this would be. The music is just so built for that. Brother, live presentation right so depressing we we were in the rehearsals already i already spent oh. hundreds and hundreds of hours making up keyboards to play the show live oh. and we start we just got together to do the rehearsals and uh and then he got sick you know it was, it was oh. terrible because a tour with robbie with the band i had 
I had two guitar players, Tommy Kelton, the guy who plays on 1000 Hands, and Jim Gentry, who played on Robbie's Not in Kansas Anymore. Two totally opposite guitar players. Yeah. One of them, one of them is Steve Howell, the other one's Trevor Rabin. You know, the, the, Funny. the styles, right? And then my brother on bass, and it was Rayford Griffin from 1000 Hands on drums. Oh, wow. You know, which is yeah. something interesting, too. You're a drummer. I mean, most of my productions normally have five drummers per album. Oh, really? Yeah, well, Robbie's album's yeah. got Billy, um, Billy Ashball, who plays with the Moody Blues, yeah. uh, Rayford Griffin, Matt Brown, and somebody else. Carmen Apiece? No. Uh, but, I mean, normally my you know, 1,000 Hands has five drummers. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we w we definitely have to have you on again if you'll put up with us. Well, put up with me, Steve. I, Steve's know, the I easy love, one. <laughs> the thing is, I, I love to, uh, you know, get people aware of other music. Um, you know, my lot on my label, I'm just trying to do the best I can. Yeah, solar with, music. Yeah, I'm just, you know, everything that we do is um, we, we're trying to do it the best we can do it. And uh, I've got a couple new artists. Of course, there's John doing uh, one or two people I can't talk about yet because the things aren't signed. But, you know, there's some really good music, hopefully, coming down the pike. I am doing a thing um, a little bit off the track, which is going to be singles. Um, November 1st, we're going to be launching a thing of just singles. I have so many people have only done one song, like Terry oh. Sylvester from the Hollies. I did an orchestra version of uh, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Um, Little Anthony from Little Anthony and the Imperials. Mm -hmm. I have a duet between him and Carmen Harrell from Cirque du Soleil. Great song. Wow. I'm doing the 60th anniversary of the song Sealed with a Kiss from my friend Brian Hyland. So that's a reorchestration of the song Sealed with a Kiss. And I did a, a soundtrack for a movie that's coming out uh, called Touch Me. And that soundtrack, the single, is going to be out on the singles label. So there'll be a whole section of projects that, you know, people, a lot of people aren't just only buying singles. You're not doing albums, you know. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for taking time to join us and ha stay on the line with Steve and I after we say goodbye to the audience. Um, we'd love to have you on again. I know there's so many more uh, stories. I'm, I'm sure Steve has all kinds of questions bounce around in his head. Uh, mine's like a Super Bowl in there. Uh, so we'll definitely have to do this again. And I want to thank everybody for joining us here on Yes Shift with myself, Stephen Schinder, and Michael Franklin. And those of you watching on Drum Talk TV, thanks for joining us. And if you're watching the archive, thank you. Share it around. And uh, everybody be well, be nice, and listen to some great music. And Steve and I will be back with more soon. Thanks so much, Michael. Okay. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Bye.